Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Charlotte Wood is the author of 10 books, including The Natural Way of Things and The Weekend. Charlotte has won the Stella Prize and the Prime Minister's Literary Award, and her features and essays have appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, Sydney Morning Herald, The Monthly, and The Saturday Paper. Today I'm talking to Charlotte Wood about her seventh novel, Stoneyard Devotional. Charlotte, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The story in Stoneyard Devotional is told by an unnamed narrator. What did a name bring to the equation that you didn't want? Uh, The book is written in the first person, and it's the first time I've done that since my first book. So this is my 10th book. Um, And the first person is uh, can be quite a limiting point of view for fiction because obviously you can't jump into other people's heads or, you know, so it's technically a little more difficult and I'm not sure that my first novel really made use of it properly. In this novel, the kind of format of it initially at least is uh, as a kind of diary that this woman is writing sort of notes to herself and then it becomes a sort of, that sort of fades away in a way, it becomes an almost an internal diary. Because she was writing this diary, I didn't think that she would name herself to herself, you know, I if I was writing a diary, I wouldn't say, and then I, Charlotte, went and did the laundry, you know. So that was one, that's a very kind of surface reason. But a, a deeper reason is that I came to the view over the writing of the novel that I didn't want anything in it that wasn't absolutely essential in my mind or sort of according to my instinct, I suppose. And I just felt that her name was not essential. It didn't matter what she was called and it also I think tonally uh, fitted with the kind of quite spacious austere kind of feeling of the book in some ways that there is there's a lot of space for readers to bring whatever they want to bring to it and to kind of work for meaning I guess and I just felt that it wasn't necessary and I didn't want anything unnecessary in the book. Her world is characterised by exclusion and by choice from family and friends and, and in a sense, from the outside world. But what does she hope to find in an isolated colony of nuns? Well, she does uh, go to this place on the Monero Plains in southern New South Wales. She's sort of escaping her life in Sydney. She, She has had a kind of major personal crisis of some kind that's not really specified, but it is to do with a loss of faith in her work as an environmental activist and advocate. She's in a sort of state of complete depletion, I suppose. So she she goes to this place that turns out to have um, a kind of guest house for people who want to go to, a, a, this is a monastery or a nunnery or whatever you want to call it, but a, a closed order of Catholic nuns in a tiny place out in the, in the middle of the Monero. And she goes there, we sort of gather fairly early on that there's, there must be a sort of homing instinct at play because her parents are buried nearby. Uh, it is the place 
where she grew up, but she doesn't want to go to anywhere that she knows. So this is, to her, an, an anonymous place. But these sorts of communities often provide sort of guest accommodation for people who want some sort of refuge. Uh, and her refuge is, and retreat is not of a religious kind at all. And initially she just wants to go there and kind of lie down and be left alone. Um, but slowly the place sort of starts working on her. She doesn't have any religious impulse and she never gets it. But she does um, respect the people who live there and, and is grateful to them for offering her this place to just sort of be without being asked any questions or having to explain herself. There's a scene where she unsubscribes from a whole lot of emails, but actually it's a kind of unsubscribing from her life. Um, she just goes through the list, unsubscribed from all these sort of humanitarian and environmental causes that she has, you know, like many of us, you know, those emails are emails that I get. You know? So she just needs to step out of her life as it exists. And she doesn't really know what might be on the other side of that stepping out, but she knows in a kind of animal way that this is necessary for her. Let's talk for a moment about the setting, and that is the Monero Plains, the high, dry Monero Plains, far from anywhere, you're right. What do the Monero Plains hold for you? Well, I grew up there too, as my narrator did. Um, I grew up in the town in Cooma, but, and the narrator doesn't say the name of the town, but it's fairly obvious it's that town or, you know, Jindabyne or, you know, another one around. But um, it's a very, very potent landscape for me even though I've been away from there for a very long time my parents died when I was in my 20s as did the narrators I left there in my early 20s and I pretty much didn't go back apart from the odd visit here and there but you know I think when you grow up in a country town um, and you leave a lot of the reason for going back is that you're going to visit family or your parents or whatever and I didn't have any family there anymore so I didn't go back that's a kind of, again, a sort of surface reason. But I understood, you know, over time that it was also a place that that magnified the grief that my siblings and I had when our parents died. Um, so I didn't want to go back there. You know, it was a it was a self that I would be returning to that I didn't want to revisit particularly. And I guess... Now I am the age that my mother was when she died and older than my father was. And it seemed like a time that I could psychically go back to to just look at, at my relationship, particularly with my mother, but also that sense of place that has always held a very kind of almost an umbilical attachment for me. The, the landscape is so bare. It's so um, spacious. It's it's really striking. I think I'm not sure if it was Douglas Stewart, the poet, who described it as a lunar landscape. It is very unusual. It's not desert, but it's these grassy, shallow, grassy plains that sometimes, at certain times of the day, the light falling across those plains is just utterly, utterly beautiful. And yet it has a kind of bedrock, harsh quality as well. And my narrator goes back there partly, I think, because she feels that in her stripped back, denuded state psychically, the landscape will understand her. 
even if nobody else can understand her. She doesn't even really understand herself. But there's some kind of mirroring of that um, stripped-back bedrock landscape that mirrors her internal state. So it was a good place for her for, to set this book, I guess. Your narrator is an atheist in a colony of nuns, but one thing she does become attuned to is the daily rituals, and in them she finds something quite beautiful. Yeah, I don't think it's that unusual for atheists to be quite taken by the beauty of ritual, of religious rituals, whether it's Buddhists or, you know, Catholics as in this case or whatever else, or any kind of ritual, you know, um, secular atheistic life is often really lacking in ritual. And I do think that for for those of us who grew up in a religious tradition, I, I was raised in a Catholic family, went to Catholic schools, abandoned Catholicism kind of as soon as I could get away from it because of all the reasons that, you know, we know about the Catholic Church. I found it a very um, patriarchal, you know, quite misogynistic organization and so on and yet it also gave me so much in it formed me you know I've, I've said quite a few times that you can leave Catholicism but it doesn't leave you and there is a kind of deep and ancient beauty and sort of consolation I think in in a ritualized life especially one of this nature which is very slow it's it's removed from society entirely that's what my narrator likes about it even though she's never entirely comfortable there she never um, forms a belief in god but after a while she sort of tries to because she respects particularly the woman who runs the place simon who's a, a very intelligent very rigorous sort of person um whereas some of the other younger nuns my narrator is just has no patience for whatsoever because she thinks they're just silly and they say silly things about Jesus as if he's kind of their boyfriend or something which she just thinks is just embarrassing um, but there is something consoling in the bodily ritual you know the kind of she says in the beginning it reminds her of yoga this kind of cyclical repetition of doing things with the body like bowing and standing and kneeling whatever but also there's this place where she doesn't have to make any decisions she just you know, wakes up in the morning when the bell goes, goes into the church, does the, you know, she says they pray and I think because she doesn't understand what prayer is and she never really figures it out. It's almost like she she unsubscribes from an intellectual life while she's there, but she just trusts in the instinct of repetition and order and sort of being told what to do. At the same time, over this period of, you know, the time that she's there, she also is always thinking, is this, this is just a cop out living this life. You know, it's escaping from, from actually doing any good in the world. And yet all the action that she has taken in her early life to do good in the world has failed. So she doesn't have any faith in that anymore either, you know. And so there's this sort of tension between these two mantras that she thinks about. First is action is the antidote to despair something she has always believed, something I have always believed, and yet all the actions she's taken, as I said, is just shown to be futile and possibly even doing damage. You know, there's a lot of damage done in the name of doing good in the world. 
And then she comes across these women and at first she sort of thinks they're faintly ridiculous. But after a time she thinks, well, these people are doing no harm. And everyone else in the world, no matter what they do, the minute they get out of bed, they're doing harm to the planet. You know, if I drive my car to the supermarket, that is not good for the planet. Whereas these women are just staying there. They're not proselytizing. They're not trying to convert anybody. They're not trying to, uh, they're not going anywhere. They're using very few resources. And she thinks, well, maybe this is a way to live that is actually more doing more good than the way I was living. As I read this book, I found myself, at least initially, slipping into this meditative state, along with the narrator in a sense. But that too is disturbed. You mentioned the mouse plague. There's something biblical and has a biblical quality about it. But another thing happens too. It's a, a almost like a relic, a relic returning to the monastery in the form of Sister Jennifer Tully. Yes, yeah, Sister Jenny uh, was a nun who lived in this place decades before my narrator arrived there. Um, but she, at a certain point, left because she thought she needed to do sort of more active good in the world. So she left this place and, against all advice, really went to work in Thailand with um, sort of the poorest of the poor, setting up a women's shelter for, for women, you know, enduring violence. And she, not long after she had begun, set up this place, she disappeared and was presumed murdered. But nothing had ever, you know, no resolution to this case had ever been found. But as my book opens, or not long after it opens, Sister Jenny's bones have been found and they're being returned from Thailand to this monastery to be buried because this was her home. It's a kind of complicated process to get these bones back because outside this place, the pandemic is going on and there are border closures and so on. And, and the pandemic doesn't really touch these women's lives except in this kind of external logistical sense. They don't, you know, they don't go anywhere. They're not at any risk of um, nobody comes there really except one neighbour. It's almost as if they're untouched by the pandemic except for this kind of, um, as I say, bureaucratic, issue about these bones being returned but they eventually are returned um, with a returning Australian nun whose name is Helen Parry and she is a kind of radical activist nun who lives a completely opposite life to these women her life is the kind of um, what someone described to me as the vita activa as opposed to the vita contemplativa that these women are doing and she so it's a big culture clash when she comes into this place and sort of disrupts everything with her energy. She's a fighter. She's a very public person. But she, of course, also brings with these funeral directors the bones of Sister Jenny. And it is it is like a reliquary, I suppose. She They set up Sister Jenny's coffin in, in one of the rooms of the place while they are doing all this bureaucratic work in, in getting permission to bury her on their own land because, you know, you're not allowed to do that without various procedures having to be gone through. So it is this sort of waiting period. It's full of tension for these women, but they also go in and sit with these bones, you know, individually here and there. They sort of keep a vigil over Sister Jenny. It's a disturbing thing to have this, these remains in their house, but it's also a kind of duty that they have to sit with her. Stoneyard Devotional was written or at least partly during the pandemic. Is this somehow a direct result of your experience of the pandemic? Uh, I think it 
is really. I started it before the pandemic. I started it in 2019, just thinking sort of vaguely about, I mean, I had a question which was why would a contemporary woman possibly become a Catholic nun? Because I find that quite strange. Um, the way that I could understand it was this idea of, of going to a contemplative order of nuns to be separate from the world. I absolutely understand that. And I don't think it would matter if it was a Buddhist monastery or a Catholic one or a, or an artist's colony or whatever, but that idea of abandoning life in the contemporary world and just staying put, I can see the appeal of very greatly. But also I think, you know, lockdown had a sizable effect on, on that same question about withdrawal from the kind of chaos of the contemporary world. While we were, you know, it wasn't, it was a very worrying time and um, very stressful time for many of us. And I didn't deal with it very well myself. But that sense of just stopping and slowing and going into a very small circle was really precious in some ways to lots of people. You know, I have friends who say, I wish we could just have like a one month lockdown now, you know, to just sort of stop the kind of um, constant chaos and, oh, I don't know, sort of running to catch up with yourself all the time. So that was a part of the, I mean, I was in that state when I was working on the book. Then there was another kind of mirror sort of lockdown that I had in, in last year, which was that I and two of my sisters all got cancer at the same time. And we were all going into treatment. We weren't living together, but there was, Anyway, we're all fine now out the other side, but it was the world shrank again to this tiny, tiny circle and to not entering the world at all except to go to the hospital and do all the treatment stuff that you have to do. So it was, um, and it was also another um, experience like the pandemic of understanding that we we walk around in our culture behaving as if we have control of everything. What the pandemic showed us and then what my sudden diagnosis showed me is that you don't control anything about your life. You, can tr you control a very small part of your life. And the, the mouth plague is yet another kind of evidence of this sort of um, overrunning of us, I suppose, and that we do live in kind of biblical times with fires and floods and plague. You know, the pandemic was a plague. The mouse plague is a plague. These epic dust storms that happened before, you know, the fires. It's sort of the natural world uh, is protesting and we keep not listening um, or sort of trying to live in some sort of denial that, that we do not control nature and it's time that we started paying attention to it. My last question to you is about memoir and the nature of memoir. You mentioned the idea of a diary and this being, in a sense, a, a kind of um, a collecting entries of a diary into a book. But this book does have the feeling of a memoir, particularly in the way it reflects on time and experience, past and present. Is it easier or more desirable or perhaps more interesting to write someone else's memoir, particularly a fictional one, rather than your own? I would say, yes, it is more desirable and, and easier. I mean, this book is... Definitely my most personal book. It's the closest thing to memoir that I will ever write, I think, even though I am not a nun, I have not left my husband, I haven't, you know, 
my life does not resemble the narrator's life, but her relationship with her mother is very much my relationship with my mother, um, even though it's a particular version of my mother. And what's left out of that version is all the stuff that makes that version untrue. You know, for example, the narrator is an only child, whereas I have siblings. So that immediately changes the picture of my mother, you know, from the one in the book. Um, and also the relationship that the narrator has with her mother is not the relationship that my siblings would have had with our mother, you know. So she, everyone in the family has a different mother, if you know what I mean, even though it's the same person because their individual relationship with her is different. I suppose the voice of the narrator is possibly the closest to my sort of internal voice um, that I've written. But I have an epigraph at the beginning of the book from the American writer Elizabeth Hardwick, and it says, I will do this work of transformed and distorted memory. The work of epigraphs to me is to sort of give the reader a hint as to how to read the book. And the the stuff from the narrator's past and with her mother that she sort of becomes preoccupied with while in this place of, well, at first stillness and then chaos. Um, it's my own transformed and distorted memory. And fiction allows you to do that. If I were writing a memoir, I couldn't transform and distort it in that way. Or it would be, I mean, I think all of our memories are already distortions and transformations of reality but yeah I don't have any interest in writing memoir but I you know it's sort of in exploring your own life and internal state is what fiction writers do I think so maybe it was inevitable at some point well it's beautiful contemplative reading that's for sure and Charlotte Wood thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast thank you so much for having me please I've been talking to Charlotte Wood about her seventh novel Stoneyard Devotional it's published by Alan and Unwin, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.